Now today, friends, we come to the little book of Micah. Back in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, it contains seven chapters. It's a little bit longer than the last couple that we've looked at. And it's a very important little book. I think maybe I'm repeating myself. I've said that about every book that we've come to in the Bible. And each one of them serves a very definite purpose. And we need to keep that in mind. I would like to just say a word concerning this man, Micah. And I think very important that we know something about him as well as his message. His name means who is like Jehovah. And the word has the same derivation as Michael, the archangel. And that means who is like God. And there are many Micahs in the Scripture. But this one here is identified here in the very first verse as a Morris fight. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morris fight, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, that gives us a great deal of information. The place that he came from is Moresheth Gath. And it's a place that is about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem near Lachish. And he is not to be confused with any other Micah of Scripture. We need to keep that before us also. Now, we are told here that he prophesied during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and they're kings of Judah. And his prophecy concerns Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, while Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. So here is a man who actually comes from the southern kingdom, but a great deal of his prophecy has to do with the northern kingdom. Now, it was at the particular time when the northern kingdom was being attacked by Assyria as well as the southern, but the northern kingdom was taken away into captivity by Assyria. Now, we're told here that it was during the reign of these three kings. He was therefore a contemporary of Isaiah, and also Hosea and Amos, and that was along about the last part of the 8th century B.C. So that we have here a pretty good background for Micah. We can know a great deal about him. And he was apparently a friend of Isaiah. His prophecy has been called a miniature Isaiah. It's sort of a mini Isaiah, or Isaiah in shorthand. There are very striking similarities and we'll call attention to them as we go through. Now, it was the German higher critics of many years ago who made an attack upon the unity of this book. It was Ewald and Welthausen, and they made the same attack, of course, upon Isaiah. 
And frankly, the attack that these men made way back yonder has been pretty well answered by conservative scholarship today so that we don't need to waste time delving into that particular part. And the very interesting thing is that Micah is actually quoted by Jeremiah. Many of you will recall that when we were in Jeremiah that I called particular attention to that because it was unusual and it reveals the importance of Micah in that day. And over in the 26th chapter of Jeremiah, in verse 18, I'd like to read that again. It says, Micah, the Morishthite, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest. And the interesting thing is that they paid no attention to either Jeremiah or to Micah. And that is exactly what happened to Jerusalem. Probably no city has been left in a shambles and in ruin and wreckage as much as the city of Jerusalem has been. Now, the theme of Micah is, to me, very important because the emphasis has always been put on judgment, that Micah is the prophet of judgment. Well, actually, it would seem that that is true because in the first three chapters, you have a great emphasis on judgment, and that's what it is. But from chapter 4 through 7, and that is 4, 5, 6, 7, you have four chapters that are given over to that which is not judgment at all. In other words, the first three chapters are denunciatory, and the last four chapters are consolatory. And the great question that we find that he asks, and it's one of the loveliest passages in the Scripture, "...who is like unto thee," that is, unto God. And we find that he emphasizes that as he goes along. "...who's like unto God in proclaiming," that is, in witnessing, in the first three chapters. And then, "...who's like unto God in prophesying." in consoling the people, chapters 4 and 5, and who is like unto God in pleading, chapter 6, and who is like unto God in pardoning. That is the wonderful thing that you have in this little book here that makes it a very wonderful little book. So we'd like to say that actually the theme here is the judgment and redemption of God. Both are here. And the key verse, to me, is Micah 7, 18 that I've just given. Who is a God like unto thee, who pardoneth iniquity, and who passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, who retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy? Now, God hates sin, but he loves the soul's 
of the sinners, and he wants to save them. You see, judgment is called God's strange work. And it's strange because he doesn't like to do it. He'd rather not. But he's a holy God, and he hates sin, and any rebellion against him, since he is God, must be dealt with. It couldn't be otherwise. But he still loves the souls of the sinners, and he wants to save them and will save them. Now, let me give you a statement that I have in my notes concerning his style, because you and I are coming now to one of the remarkable books as to style. If you appreciate literature, if you appreciate poetry, if you appreciate that which is beautiful in language, you'll appreciate Micah. Now, let me give you the statement I have on this. And I'm reading now from my notes. For many, this is the favorite of the minor prophets. The writing is pungent and personal. Micah was trenchant, touching, and tender. He was realistic and repertorial. He would have made a good war correspondent. There is an exquisite beauty about this brochure which combines God's infinite tenderness with his judgments. There are several famous passages which are familiar to the average Christian, though many do not know even where it comes from in the Bible. Through the gloom of impending judgment, Micah saw clearly the coming glory of the redemption of Israel. And this makes this quite a remarkable book. And I'd like to add a further comment here that we have made in our notes. Micah pronounced judgment on the cities of Israel and Jerusalem and Judah. These sinners influenced the people of the nation. These were the urban problems that sound very much like our present-day problems. Micah condemns violence, corruption, robbery, covetousness, gross materialism, spiritual bankruptcy, and sex. He could be labeled the prophet of the city. Well, that's a label been given by someone else. Now, I think that the way you can divide the little book is very interesting. It starts off in verse 2, "'Hear, all ye people.'" That's the first division. Then when you get to chapter 3, you find this again. And I said, Here, I pray you, O heads of Jacob. And then you keep turning over, and you'll come to chapter 6, and here it begins, Hear now what the Lord saith, so that you can divide it according to the hears that we have. And so we have in the first three chapters, proclaiming future judgment for past sins. Then, in chapters 4 and 5, you have prophesying future glory because of past promises. And then you have in the third major division in chapter 6, and you have present repentance because of past redemption. And I put in this fourth division, pardoning all iniquity because of who God is and what he does. 
and that's chapter 7. Now, that gives you the rundown on the little book. So many, especially young preachers, have written in. They want to give exposition, and they want to know how to begin. And I would say this not only to young preachers, but to anyone who wants to study the Bible. The first thing that you should do is to get a grasp of the message of the entire book. What's it all about? What's he trying to say? What is the main message that you have? And therefore, you need to get an outline of the book. And therefore, here it's, Who is a God like unto thee in proclaiming and in prophesying and in pleading and in pardoning? And that divides the little book. Now, that brings us to this first chapter and the first division and the first three chapters. We have proclaiming future judgment for past sins, the first three chapters. Now, we have in this little book some very striking statements, and we will be looking at one of them, the first one here in this first chapter. But in practically every chapter we have, and I say practically in every chapter, there will be a very striking statement that will be made. And sometimes it'll be one verse, sometimes it'll be many verses, as it will be here in this first chapter. So we have here the prophet's first message is directed against Samaria, and it reaches to Jerusalem. That is chapter 1. Now, will you note here in verse 1, and I want to read it again, the word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morishthite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, again, let me repeat. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. And one of the golden calves that Jeroboam had made was put in Samaria. It was the place that we talked about before, because it's been before us. It was built by Omri, and it was really made famous, or infamous, I should say, by Ahab and Jezebel. And it's built in a very lovely location, but it's in absolute ruins today. I have a message that I give on the Antichrist, and I show pictures, slides that I took on a trip that we made to that land, and we visited Samaria. And it certainly is in ruins today. Probably no place is as much in ruins as this place is, but it certainly tells the story. And Micah's prophecy concerning Samaria has been literally fulfilled. Now, Micah, he's from southwest of Jerusalem. He's in the kingdom of Judah, but he prophesies to both kingdoms. But actually, his main message is to the northern kingdom. And I've often wondered about that. He's a contemporary of Isaiah, and he was a younger man. I have a feeling that he felt that Isaiah, being the senior prophet to the southern kingdom, would take care of them. 
And so God directed him to speak to the northern kingdom. And he makes it very clear to whom he's speaking. You never misunderstand Micah because he'll let you know the ones to whom he's speaking. And that brings us here to verse 2, where he makes this statement. Hear all ye people. Now, this begins this first main division. He's going to proclaim future judgment upon Samaria. Hear all ye people. Now, all ye people means all the people, friends. That means you, way out yonder, wherever you are today, he's talking to you. This has a message for us today, and as we've seen, that although the prophet spoke into a situation that has long since disappeared, and even the kingdom has, but their message is relevant for today because certain great principles are put down. Actually, the thing I'd like to mention here is that Micah, as several of the other prophets, gives us a philosophy of human government. He deals with that which is false and true authority in government. This would be a good book for the Democrats and the Republicans to consider in Washington today. Wouldn't hurt them to look at God's philosophy of government, because very candidly, their form is not working today. And the reason they can't make our form work is because it was put together by men. Several of them were not Christians, couldn't be called Christians, but they had respect and reverence for the Bible. And they felt that the great principles stated in the Bible were worth following. And therefore, that was woven into the web and woof of our government. And a group of godless men today can't make it work. And it will never work in the hands of godless men. And that, friends, frankly, is our problem. Our problem today in this country is not a question of this party or that party. And it's not a question of whether this will work or that will work. And there are all kinds of rationalizing today of what our problem is. But our problem today is that our government is in the hands of godless men, and it won't work. Because, you see, there is a philosophy of government given in the Bible, and these men of the past were acquainted with it. And actually, the form of government is not important. That's not the important feature at all. We think it is today. Did you know that Cromwell was a dictator in England and they had about the best form of government they could possibly have? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not recommending a dictator. But if you had the right kind, and when Jesus comes to reign on this earth, friends, he's going to be a dictator. And I want to say this, he's going to be the right kind. The character of the ruler is important. That's the thing that's important today. And a monarchy, a limited monarchy, an autocracy, a democracy, or a representative form of government, it makes no difference which, if the right men are in charge. I wish I could get it over to folk today that I'm not talking politics. I am talking about a philosophy of government and I'm trying to put my finger down on what the Bible says is the problem. It's the character of the man. 
in government. We today are so wrapped up in whether he has a TV personality or not, or whether he has charisma or not, and we are more interested in charisma than we are in character. And today, we need men of character in government. And they are few and far. Well, you just can't find them around much today. And that is what this man condemned. Over in the third chapter, verse 11, he said, "...her heads judge for reward, and her priests teach for hire, and her prophets divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No evil can come upon us." False, you see. False prophets. False religion. False leaders. That's the big problem. And Micah puts his finger down on it. Now, he says that the Lord is coming down in judgment. Will you listen to verse 3? For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Now, this little book has been, I think, misrepresented when it's said that it's just a book of judgment. That is absolutely inaccurate because there is more than judgment here. There is a tenderness and a sweetness in this book that reveals how wonderful our God is. He is the one who pardoneth iniquity. He is the one that can forgive and His forgiveness is so different than our forgiveness. We forgive if we feel like it, and we forgive without any payment being made many times. But do you know that God never forgives until the payment has been made? Never. You see, the reason he can forgive your sin and mine is because the penalty has already been paid. That's the basis of God's forgiveness. He just doesn't arbitrarily forgive. He's a holy God. And as a holy God, he forgives on the basis of his tenderness and his love and giving his son to die for us. Now, you just couldn't have a more wonderful view of God than you have in this little book. Now, remember, this is Old Testament. Remember, this is what the critic says is a God of the Old Testament is brutal and cruel. And the God of the Old Testament's not a God of mercy. And it's all judgment. Well, there's a lot of judgment here at first. And there's a lot of judgment, may I say, in the New Testament. In fact, more in the New Testament than the Old. Actually, the Old Testament doesn't develop the doctrine of hell. You've got to get to the New Testament for that. And do you know who developed it? The Lord Jesus, the gentle Jesus, did that. So if you want to follow his teachings, Mr. Liberal, then you believe in hell. <laughs> You'd have to. That is, unless you don't follow his teaching. Now, this language is absolutely beautiful, although it's frightful in many ways, that God is coming down now in judgment, and he's going to tread upon the high places of the earth. Now, these high places... Samaria was built on a mountain, so was Jerusalem. And here was the place where they put up idols, found idols in many places in that day, and always up on a high place, up on a mountain top. 
That was the place for idolatry. Now, God is going to come down, and he's going to tread upon the high places of the earth. The places where there was idolatry. And here's where the cities were built also. The Lord Jesus mentioned a city that is set upon a hill cannot be hid. And that city has a tremendous influence upon the area that is around it. The influence of cities has always been great. And also, when it is the seat of government, it has a tremendous influence upon the area and sometimes actually upon the world. That has been true of many great cities of the past and cities today. And they are also the center of great sin, by the way. And it's the reason that God is going to judge. Now, you'll notice, he says here, "...and the mountains shall be melted under him, and the valleys shall be cleft like wax before the fire." and like the waters that are poured down a steep place. Now, this definitely is a picture of earthquakes, and you will find that running through the Scripture. I don't want to take time for this, but you could find in many places in the Scripture where this is a picture, actually, of earthquakes. And I'm going to turn to only one reference and it's in the book of Psalms, this figure of speech runs through the Word of God, beginning with the fifth chapter of Judges, verse 4, and it continues all the way through to Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 5. Isaiah uses the figure of speech and many of the Psalms, but I'm turning to Psalm 18 now and begin reading at verse 7. Now listen to this language. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed down the heavens also and came down, and darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. Now, what we have here is a picture of an earthquake, volcano, and it raises the question today about nature, about whether nature's blind or, as the advertisement has had it, you ought not to fool Mother Nature. Well, may I say to you, Mother Nature just doesn't happen to exist at all except on a TV screen. It's God today that controls nature. And earthquakes and volcanoes and all of the weather is controlled by God. And God uses earthquakes as judgment. I'm not sure, but what Southern California, uh, of course, we're defying God today in more ways than one. We're putting up these big tall buildings when I came out here, I think a 13-story building was the limit. We've got them now up past 60 stories. And they're coming down one of these days. I believe that God judges and that he judges nations. He judges peoples. And these are warnings. I always felt that the dust storms 
that came during the Depression. The Depression came, and then there was the Dust Bowl. And out of that area, literally thousands of people took flight. And America didn't listen to God then. The Depression, I'm confident, was a judgment of God. The Dust Bowl was. Nobody heard him. Nobody listened to him. And then we entered World War II, and we haven't recovered from that yet. The thing is that God is still moving in the affairs of the world, and God still judges, and he comes down. And this is highly figurative, but it is a tremendous, accurate, exact, and literal picture of what takes place. Now, will you notice, he says here, why this is happening, why volcanoes and all that sort of thing. When you go to Turkey today, especially along the coast there, the west coast, and you see all those great cities like Ephesus and like Pergamum that at one time were the very heart blood of the Roman Empire, great cities, why are they today lying in ruins? And why is it that there's no great population there actually? And small towns are about the only thing that you have. Well, somebody says it's earthquake territory. You are right. And it's interesting that man always flocks to earthquake territory. That's true here in California. We got them out here now by the millions. We're ready for one, let me tell you. And that was true in the Roman Empire. The great population of the Roman Empire was in what is today modern Turkey. But what happened to them? And what happened to those cities? Well, the historian tells us today, earthquakes destroyed those cities and caused the people to flee. Judgment of God, if you please. And God makes it very clear he judged the Roman Empire. Now, may I say to you, God makes it clear here about his judgment. Verse 5, For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. Now, you see, he's speaking to both kingdoms and to the capitals, Samaria of Israel, Jerusalem of Judah, of Jacob. Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Now, Jerusalem was the place they were to worship God. But were they worshiping him there? Well, yes, they'd go to the temple, but they also were going to the high places where there were idols, and where actually the worst form and gross form of immorality took place. And this is the thing that God says that he's going to judge them for, and judge these two great cities. Now, I think of this in connection with our own nation today, because we saw last time that we have here a philosophy of government. Micah makes it clear that it's not the form of government that's wrong. Actually, a dictatorship is not wrong. What's wrong? It's the people that head it up. It's the one who is the dictator. And I do not know whether there's too much difference in having one godless dictator than having a whole senate and representatives, all of them godless. What difference does it make? And the reason that the founders of our nation put three departments of government. And the reason that they didn't have a king, that was what they were accustomed to, and 
They debated that, you know. They wondered whether it wouldn't be wise. But they had had a bad experience with old George back in England, you know, and they were not about to have another king. So they formed the three branches of government, not because they were so smart, but because of the fact they couldn't trust man. They knew they couldn't trust man. And therefore, they formed three branches of government so one could watch the other. (laughs) And believe me today, all three need watching. And why? Because you've got to have the right kind of man today in government for any government to function. And that was the problem in that day. Samaria and Jerusalem had become corrupt, and God was judging. I don't know, but I'm of the opinion that we've gone over the hill. Now, for years, I've been saying this, and it's not new at all for me to say this. I've been preaching it for 25 years, that the United States is not in prophecy, and that in the end times that we've either disappeared or we're no longer a world power. And friends, we're going down in a hurry today. A member of the State Department told me that now in conferences that are being conducted by other nations where America always took the lead, some of them were not even invited to them. And when we are, we're not asked to take the lead. We had a marvelous opportunity after World War II to lead the world. And what did we give them? We gave them rock music. We gave them the hippies. We gave them the new morality. And we gave them a love of pleasure and a love of affluence. And today, America is on the way down. And when I say that, I'm saying it not because I enjoy saying it, because I love my country And I hate to see what's happening to it and hate to see a godless outfit take over and spoil this nation that I do believe that under God was founded for a very definite purpose. Now, this is the philosophy of government that this man, Micah, is espousing. This is God's philosophy of government, you see. Now we come to the first striking statement, and it's the longest one. It goes through the remainder of the chapter, from verse 6 through verse 16. And what you have here is just a miniature of the great destruction that is coming in the last days. And he'll come back to that when we get to the fourth chapter. But here it's local. Assyria destroyed Samaria at one time, a lovely city. At one time, a city with great influence and culture, a city that had great promise, but it's over there today in dust and ashes. Now, listen to him as he speaks. Therefore, I will make Samaria like a heap of the field. And frankly, that's what it is today. I saw a little vineyard put there by an Arab right down through the ruins of one section of Samaria. And there are other places there where they have an orchard. You can find different kinds of trees that have been planted there. I'll make Samaria like a heap of the field and like plantings of a vineyard, and I will pour down its stones into the valley. And friends, 
I stood up at the Acropolis, the very highest place in Samaria, in the ruins there, and I looked down a steep embankment, and you know what's down there? All kinds of pillars and all kinds of stones that have formerly been hewn out and have been in buildings. But there they are, been rolled down. I can't think of anything more literal than this. How else could it be? And I will pour down its stones into the valley, and I will uncover the foundations of it. And the very interesting thing is, I have pictures of the foundations that go back to Ahab and Jezebel. I have pictures of the foundations that the Romans put there. And everything is in ruins. God says it just won't prosper, that's all. And he made it very clear, I'm going to uncover the foundations. I got the pictures, friends. God uncovered them. And they're right over there for you to take a good look at today. There was a tremendous city there, but it's gone out of business. Now listen to him. Verse 7, "...and all the carved images of it shall be beaten to pieces." And I asked my guide, I said, are there any images around here? Did they find any? And he said, no, no evidence here of idolatry. Yet we know that there was idolatry here, but he says there's no evidence of it whatsoever. Now he said in the palace of Jezebel, and you remember God said that that palace of ivory would be destroyed. He said that they have found in the ruins quite a few ivory vessels that were evidently jars to hold perfume and others larger for wine, and they are of ivory. That was an ivory palace that was built there, and it's all gone, but the archaeologist has found some ivory there, and they have excavated there a great deal. And all its hires shall be burned. Now, that word hires is a very interesting word that we have here, and I want us to look at it for just a moment because it is an important word. But the hires were costly vessels that had been given to the heathen temples, and they have found several of those hires, that is, those very expensive ivory vessels that were used for perfume and probably incense and probably for the worship of that day. This is something that is quite remarkable, by the way, that he mentions here. And he says here, "...and all its idols will I lay desolate, for she gathered it of the hires of an harlot, and they shall return to the hire of an harlot." That is, all of these are going right back and will be used for sin again which apparently they were in Roman times. Old Herod rebuilt that city, and he liked it. That was such a delightful place to live. But that place has been destroyed also. In other words, what was the main sin now he mentions here? Sex. That was number one on the sin parade. In Corinth, for instance, they know today that the worship there of Aphrodite upon the Acropolis. There were a thousand bestial virgins, as they were called, so-called, by the way. And they were nothing in the world but prostitutes. And when you went up there to worship, this was part of the worship, you see. And 
That was true in this land. It was true among the Phoenicians, and it was true among the Philistines. And Israel picked this thing up, and they were guilty of it. In other words, a man had to pay when he went into one of these places. Actually, the temples, and when it was just outdoors, there was nothing in the world but a brothel. And all of it was done in the name of religion. It's quite interesting today that we are returning to that viewpoint. The so-called new morality, it's as old as the worship of Moloch or of Baal or of any heathen religion of the world. And that's one of the reasons that we say religion has not been a blessing to the world. It has wrecked mankind. And if you want to see what religion has done, go to India. Religion is absolutely kept a wonderful people there down and kept them in a low state, bound down by the fetters of a religion. Now, Christianity is not a religion. The Lord Jesus made it clear, if the Son make you free, you shall be free indeed. And you can be delivered from these things that are sinful, the things that God condemns. Now, this is the condemnation of these people. Now, it so affected the prophet. Micah is very much like Jeremiah. And actually, Hosea, men with tender hearts. God used prophets. We think of them all being like Elijah. Now, I think Elijah was a hard-nosed prophet. And Ezekiel was. You remember God said, he said, they are hard-headed people. But God says to Ezekiel, I'm going to make your heads hard as theirs. In fact, harder than their head. And these men would speak right out. But many of God's prophets were very tender-hearted, and Micah's one of them. Now listen to him in verse 8. He says, Therefore, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. Now that was a sign. You remember Isaiah mentions it. Micah mentions it here that to go naked meant that a man was in deep mourning and that he was in deep trouble, too, by the way. And he goes on to say, I will make a wailing like the jackals. Have you ever heard a hyena at night howling? It's a mournful sound, or a wolf. fact of the matter is, it's a terrible sound. And the morning, like the, not owls, but ostriches. And you have that, by the way, over in the prophecy of Job, there in the 30th chapter, verse 29, Job says, I'm a brother to dragons and a companion, not to owls, but to ostriches. Now, I never knew that ostriches mourn, but several years ago, I was down at the zoo in San Diego, and my wife and I were walking around, and we heard a mournful sound. It was a very plaintive and pitiful sort of a sound. I thought at first some animal had been trapped or caught or hurt in some way. And we just continued our walk down. I met a man, and I asked him, I said, do you know what was making that sound? And he said, the ostriches. And I thought the man was pulling my leg. I didn't even answer him back. I didn't even thank him, because I thought he's pulling my leg. 
kept walking down. First thing you know, we came around the bend. There were the ostriches. But they were all standing there, just looking around. I couldn't see any reason for them doing it, but that's what the man had said. And I do know that I heard the most mournful sound that I think I'd ever heard. And apparently it was the ostriches that were making it. Well, that's what he's saying here, that he mourned like they did. He wailed like they did. And in other words, the message that this man is giving is affecting him as Jeremiah's message affected him. In other words, we have again an example of the type of man God wants to deliver a harsh message. It must be a man with a tender heart if it's to be a harsh message. Why? Because God wants even the sinner, and he wanted his people before he judged them to know how he felt. So he sent this weeping prophet, Jeremiah, and this weeping prophet of Micah, and they could listen to him and then hear his mourning and his wailing, and they would know how God felt about it all, that God was not vindictive. God was not taking any delight in the judgment. In other words, God did not want to judge them, but God does judge sin. And although he takes no delight in it, he must judge it. He has to judge it. And all you have to do is just turn that over in your mind just a little. If God will compromise with evil, friends, and permit evil and wrong done to one of his creatures, he's not God, <laughs> you see. He would not be, he couldn't be God. God has to be one who is going to give justice to his creatures. And when evil is done and sin is committed and wrong is done, God's going to do something about it. And it takes him a little while to get around to it, but he moves. And when he moves, I tell you, this nothing can stop him from moving. Now, will you notice as we move on, we are told here in verse 9, for her wound is incurable. Now, they had passed over a line, and I do not know where that line is, but I believe that it is possible for an individual, and it's possible for a nation, to pass over a line where it can't come back. And it's not because God is not merciful and gracious, but it's because that the individual or the nation is so bent in sin and has turned such a deaf ear to God that there's nothing left but judgment, you see. It's incurable. They no longer will hear God. And that disturbs me because I wonder today if perhaps my country, my nation, the United States may now have passed over that line. All I know is they are not hearing the voice of God today. And they don't want to hear the voice of God. Now, in spite of the fact that there is a tremendous reception today for the Word of God, but I sometimes wonder how deep it is. And I wonder whether hearing the Word of God and obedience to the Word of God are synonymous today. I find that there are people today, actually, that are living in sin or have lived in sin and have never repented of it at all. 
And yet they talk about how they love the Word of God. My friend, may I say to you, it's possible for an individual and it's possible for a nation to take a step over where it's incurable. He says, for her wound is incurable, for it has come unto Judah. It's gone that far. He's come under the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. And that was Samaria. That was the Assyrian under Sennacherib that came down, and he just mowed down the northern kingdom. But he got as far as the walls of Jerusalem. And you remember, Hezekiah was afraid that they were going to take the city. And Isaiah went in and told him no. That was a warning to the southern kingdom. But they didn't heed the warning. Oh, for a while they did, but it wore off and they returned back to their idolatry and sin and the day came when God judged them. Now we have a series of names given here of other communities, other towns that were affected by Samaria and Jerusalem. And these towns, if you follow them on the map, and they're not all on the map, by the way, they begin with Samaria and you move toward Jerusalem. In fact, you go beyond Jerusalem. And the meaning of these towns, I think, are very important for us that we have here. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 10. It says, "...declare it not at Gath, weep not at all." And Gath actually means weep town. It was weep town. And God says now, weep not in weep town. Now, Gath belonged to the Philistines. Don't let them know down there how you really feel about this. Don't let them know that judgment is coming upon you. And then he moves on down and says, In the house of Aphra, roll thyself in the dust. Now, Aphra means dust town. And he says, now throw dust on your head when you get to dust town. And these places, some of them are known, others are not known. And then we come in verse 11 to one that's not known. Pass away, thou inhabitant of Shafer. And believe me, the inhabitants passed away because they... Town is no more the site of it. It's absolutely unknown. And Schaefer means beauty town. And beauty town now is no longer beautiful. Having thy shame naked. And the inhabitant of Zaanan came not forth. And Zaanan mean march town. And march town didn't march. And it also, the side of it is not really known today. And in the morning of Beth Ezel, he shall receive of you his standing. And now let me move on down to verse 12 here. For the inhabitant of Maroth waited anxiously for good. Now, Maroth means bitterness. And they waited for a good report, a good word, a good news, but they didn't receive it. Bitterness. Now, but evil came down from the Lord unto the gate of Jerusalem. They waited for a good word. No good word came. The Assyrians marching to the very walls of Jerusalem. But God is giving the southern kingdom another chance. 
And then he says, O thou inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. Now, it is well known today, that is, scholars have determined that Lachish, which, by the way, now is south of Jerusalem, it's southwest of Jerusalem, and it's over near the Philistine country. And Lachish was the place where idolatry was first introduced in the southern kingdom. And there apparently was a relationship there between Lachish and Judah and Jeroboam, the one who made Israel to sin in the north. At least this is where the idolatry began. And you notice the reference here to the beasts, which are horses. This is a place where horses were kept that were used in the worship of the sun. You remember even the Greeks had Apollo driving a chariot across the sky. This is the worship of the sun. And this is a form of idolatry. And God is condemning all of this because Lachish introduced idolatry to Judah, to the southern kingdom. Now in verse 14, he says, "...therefore shalt thou give presents to Moresheth Gath." And that, of course, was the hometown of the prophet, and it was in the southern kingdom. And he says, "...the houses of Agzib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel." Well, Akzib actually means lie town, and they lived up to their name. In fact, all of these towns lived up to their name, and this is a lie town. They were given over to liars. And the word that is used here comes from an Old Testament word that has to do with brooks. That is, the brooks in Israel are very much like they are in California, Southern California, I should say. A friend of mine was driving with me, and we crossed the Los Angeles River. Well, the Los Angeles River in wintertime years ago could really go on a rampage when we had our wet season. But in the dry season, there's not a drop of water in it, and it's very dry. Now, that was way back in the 1940s. And this friend of mine, as we crossed the river, why, he says, you know, that's a good place for a river. Well, I said, it sure is. And in wintertime, the river is there. Well, Israel has a great many of those like that. You can see that at one time water ran down there, and they have what we would call out here flash floods. Out on the desert, they have them. What is as dry as powder can in just a few minutes become a raging flood. And so these brooks, Agzib suggests that, lie town. In other words, they had promised to be a help to the northern kingdom, but they were not. They had actually offered no help at all. And this place apparently is way down near a Julem, and that's the cave, you remember, that David hid in, and it's down in a place that is quite a place today. There are palm trees there, very fertile. There are falls there because there's a great spring there, and the cave of Adulam is there. It's called En Gedi. 
today, and it was called that back in Old Testament times. And so we have here, Agzib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. They look like they've got water in them. They look like they're going to be a help, but they were no help whatsoever. Now we come to verse 15, and he says, Yet will I bring an heir unto thee, O inhabitant of Marishah. He shall come unto Adullam, the glory of Israel. Now here is a suggestion that there is coming a help to them, but not at that time. But it is a suggestion, and I must confess a faint one, that an heir would be an heir of the line of David that would come and would deliver them. And one of his names is Faithful. He's faithful and true, and he is coming to deliver them. He'll not be coming from Lie Town by any means. But at this time, they are deceived, greatly deceived, and no help came to them when the Assyrian came down from the north and overran the land. Now, he calls upon them at this time to mourn as a nation. Verse 16, he says, "...make thee bald, and cut off the hair of thy delicate children. Enlarge thy baldness as the eagle, for they are gone into captivity from thee." In other words, when Assyria came down, they took first the young people with them. And now the nation is called upon to mourn because of that. And this was a custom in Israel. Although, if you go back to the Mosaic Law and in Deuteronomy 14.1, they were told not to trim their beards. They were told not to shave their heads. But now they are told to do it because of the sin that it's come in, and it was a custom. Now, Isaiah, the contemporary of Micah, has something to say about it. Over in the 15th chapter of Isaiah, verse 2, he says here, he's gone up to Bayeth and to Dibon, a high places. Again, they're places of idolatry. To weep, Moab shall howl over Nebo and over Medeba. On all their heads shall be baldness and every beard cut off. That's a sign of deep mourning and of wailing. They've lost their children, you see. And this is the judgment of God upon them.